Okay, I think we're ready to get started. Uh, hello, uh, my name is Reese Rushing. I'm Director of Regulatory Policy and Information Policy uh, here at the Center for American Progress. Um, and as, as somebody who works on regulatory policy, I'm, I'm used to toiling in obscurity, uh, but for now at least regulation is hot. Um, thanks, thanks for coming. Uh, this, is, uh, this is a really great turnout. Um, so uh, most administrations finish uh, with a flurry of midnight regulations that are intended to extend the outgoing president's leg. The Bush administration was no different in this respect. Uh, but perhaps uh, no administration has been so driven to dismantle regulatory safeguards, uh, from drug safety to environmental protection uh, to family and medical leave. And today we are releasing two reports uh, which are available on the back table um, back there and also on our website at AmericanProgress.org. Um, the first by Ann Joseph O'Connell, um, right here on our panel, um, provides comprehensive data on regulatory output during transition periods from 1983 to 2008. Um, and this report provides context for what is going on right now. Um, the second, which I co-authored with Rick Melberth and Matt Media of OMB Watch um, specifically lists problematic regulations adopted in the Bush administration's final months. Uh, both reports discuss what the Obama administration can do in response to these last-minute actions. And of course, uh, the opening action has already been taken um, on President Obama's first day in office. Uh, White House uh, Chief of Staff Rahm Emanuel issued a memorandum halting uh, all proposed and final rules um, pending a review. Um, joining me to discuss the Bush administration's midnight regulation and the Obama administration's response are the aforementioned uh, Ann Joseph O'Connell, um, Assistant Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, Gary Bass, Executive Director of OMB Watch, and Sally Katzen, member of the Obama-Biden transition team's project, uh, project agency review working group and former administrator of OMB's Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs under President Clinton. Um, Anne is going to begin by presenting some of the data she compiled for her report. Um, we'll then have 45 minutes, minutes of discussion in which I'll ask questions of the panelists and then we'll take questions from the audience for the final half hour. Um, Anne? Uh, so this report is based on a new database that I constructed uh, that is constructed from agency semi-annual reports to the Unified Agenda of Federal Regulatory and Deregulatory Actions. The database contains information reported by uh, all 15 cabinet departments, 10 executive agencies. So when I mean executive, uh, I mean uh, more under the direct control of the president, so the Environmental Protection Agency and 22 independent agencies. And when I mean independent, uh, I mean with greater legal protections and more distance from the president. So basically anything ending in board or commission, so Securities and Exchange Commission, for example. Um, the database is extensive, uh, uh, and I'm very grateful in particular to David Pritzker at uh, RISC at, the, uh, at GSA uh, for giving me access to the most recent XML uh, files. 
So if you look empirically about regulatory actions during political transitions, there are two large categories. The first are what exactly is happening in the regulatory arena as a political transition approaches, and then second, what happens as soon as a new administration comes into power in terms of addressing uh, the, the midnight regulatory activity of the previous administration and in terms of starting an affirmative regulatory agenda. So starting with the first category, what happens with regard to regulatory activity in the closing months uh, of an administration. So if you track final regulatory actions in the unified agenda um, from the 1983 to 2008 period, um, you see what your intuition uh, and anecdotes might suggest. First, right, you often see spikes in regulatory output, final regulations at the end of, the end of an administration. In particular, we saw this under President Reagan uh, under Bush uh, 41. Interestingly, within the Clinton administration, the sort of big spike uh, in terms of midnight regulations was midnight before the congressional shift, right, after the 1994 elections uh, and before the Republicans come to power uh, in January uh, 1995. And in terms of this past administration, uh, Bush 43, my data doesn't actually cover the last three months uh, of the administration. It goes through the fall 2008 uh, unified agenda. But we see an increase in final regulatory actions uh, in that preceding period, August, September, October, uh, within uh, the Bush uh, 43 uh, administration. Uh, and if you look. Uh, at a subset of these final regulatory actions, those that are considered to be significant, and here I mean not only economically significant, $100 million or more effect on the economy, but also actions that get labeled by agencies in the unified agenda as otherwise significant. So if you look at, at both of those categories, uh, the data for this is available starting in 1995. It doesn't go all the way back to 1983 uh, in the unified agenda. And you see these spikes in midnight regulatory activity with regard to significant regulatory uh, actions as well. With regard to the Bush 43 administration, we see that the most significant rulemaking that got finished got finished uh, in the final three months that are available in the data. So in August, September, and October, we see more significant rules under the, the Bush 43 administration than in any previous uh, quarter. Um, now, we also see with regard to the Clinton administration, right, the most significant actions, again, this started in 1995 within the Clinton administration, occur in his final three months, November, December, uh, and January. Um, so in addition to trying to push stuff out in the final months, uh, agencies also start regulatory activity in the final months, and this you could also uh, contend qualifies as midnight regulatory activity. So if you just look at the start of rulemakings, the notices of proposed rulemaking, uh, you see uh, with regard uh, to some of the administrations uh, a spike in the start of rulemakings in the final month as well. The really interesting uh, example here is actually Bush 41. Makes some sense. He didn't get reelected. Uh, presumably thought he was going to have a second term, and there's a huge spike in notices of proposed rulemaking that occur in the final three months of the Bush 41 administration. Whereas under Clinton, no spike in the final few months with regard to notices of proposed rulemaking. Um, 
And with regard to this last administration, the Bush 43 administration, we do see as many or more notices of proposed rulemaking uh, in the final year of that administration than in any other similar uh, period within the Bush uh, 43 uh, administration. So that gives a little flavor of what's happening at the end of administrations. But we can also use the unified agenda data to look at what happens at the start of the administration. What are some of the regulatory moves that occur in the crack of dawn, uh, shall we say? Uh, so there's going to be more discussion on the panel about this, uh, the, the memo uh, uh, from uh, Chief of Staff Emanuel and how that differs from the memo uh, uh, by Andrew Card uh, in 2001. But there are sort of a range of actions that can occur at the start of an administration uh, to address some of the midnight regulatory activity. One I want to just talk about briefly are withdrawals of rulemaking. Now, to be very clear here, a withdrawal, as defined in the unified agenda, is the pulling of a regulatory process that hasn't been completed. So an agency issues a notice of proposed rulemaking. They take comments, uh, let's say, but they don't actually issue the final rule or final regulatory action. These, these sort of uncompleted rulemaking activities are very easy to undo. You just withdraw it. You don't have to take notice and comment. You just withdraw it. So if you actually track withdrawals of uncompleted regulatory actions uh, through the data uh, from 1983 uh, to 2007, you see spikes at times you would expect to see them. In 1993, in the transition from Bush 41 to Clinton, and then in 2001 with a transition from Clinton uh, to Bush 43. You also see some spikes around congressional transitions. So in 1995, the EPA actually withdraws the most uncompleted regulatory actions in the Clinton administration in 1995, uh, as opposed to any other year uh, within the Clinton administration. And the Department of Interior, for example, uh, does the most withdrawals uh, in 1993 and 2001, uh, sort of in the first year of both the Clinton uh, and Bush 43 uh, administrations. And the final slide I want to show deals with what can we find from the data in terms of starting your own uh, regulatory action, starting your own rulemakings by new administrations? And I think what's interesting here is that new presidents are slow to issue their own notices of proposed rulemaking. So an example, Environmental Protection Agency, in 1993, you get 75 NPRMs, notices of proposed rulemaking. You get 105 in 1994. Similarly, in this past administration, EPA, 45 notices of proposed rulemaking in 2001, 75. Uh, in 2002. So presidents are slow uh, to get going or slow to initiate rulemakings, a variety of reasons, getting your appointees in place, preparing the new uh, rulemaking processes, uh, et cetera. Uh, and I think I'll just leave it there. Okay, great. Thanks, Ann. Um, my first question uh, is for Gary. Um, Ann uh, has, has given the numbers about uh, spike in regulatory activity. Um, I'd like to get into the, the substance of what um, the Bush administration has done. Um, Gary, how, how would you, what would you characterize uh, uh, the Bush administration and its actions? Anybody have any Watch good terms? Yeah. <laughs> Watch your language. I, 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 I really think Professor O'Connell's uh, description of the numbers is helpful, but I think we also need to keep in mind this isn't a numbers game. This is about health, safety, environmental, consumer protections. If there were two bad midnight regulations and they were the worst two, 
I would still say it was a horrible thing. So without regard to numbers, I think we need to look at context. Um, I think what we can safely say is under the Bush administration, the last set of regulations that came out, virtually everyone's ox was gored. I mean, it was really pretty amazing when you look at it, from environment to health to consumer issues to workplace issues, the whole range, whether you were concerned about mountaintop mining and the notion of uh, the spoil going to the rivers, whether you're talking about protection of endangered species, whether you're talking about Medicaid outpatient rules, whether you're talking about family and medical leave and privacy rights of workers, whether you're talking about healthcare providers who get federal funding and the notion that suddenly healthcare providers may opt out of providing various kinds of services to women and families. I mean, the, the list is just incredible when we look back at what was done. It was overwhelming, regardless of numbers. And I, I think there was, at least from my personal perspective, I think there were some differences between the Bush administration's departure with midnight regulations and the Clinton departure with midnight regulations. I think one of the most significant things is that Bush moved up midnight. It was sort of like on daylight savings time on steroids. You know, it was, it was done early and it was done strategically. It was done very specifically to tie Obama, President Obama, from being able to slow down or undo many of the bad regulations that I just described. That was one huge difference. I think a second big difference is the substance. You know, I would have said regardless of whether they're midnight or whether they were daytime, these were just bad rules. Many of them were deregulatory, anti-regulatory. They should not have been done, and they shouldn't have been done at any time. Midnight, noontime, morning. It should not have been done. I think the third big difference is I think a number of these were created at the last second, which means they're just going to be flat out crummy and sloppy. Example, I mentioned endangered species. That was done in less than or right around four months. And to make a, almost a mockery of the democratic process, you had 300,000 comments come in. The Associated Press estimated to get it all done and review those comments the agency would have to have reviewed seven comments a minute. Another rule, which was also done, the health care provider one that I mentioned, was done in a little bit under four months. That Normally we measure the review that occurs at the Office of Management Budget in weeks, months. This one we'd have to measure in hours. It zipped through a review. It was reviewed by OMB in the morning. And by the afternoon, it was published in the Federal Register. There were a host of these that were just zipped along. And as a result, we can be assured that they are going to be of poorer quality. Now, having said this, I'm extremely pleased at the actions that President Obama took on day one. Immediately after being sworn in, uh, it was mentioned that Chief of Staff Rahm Emanuel put out a memo, and that memo, which I will call a regulatory moratorium, was in some respects similar to what President Bush did when he came in uh, to the Clinton rules. Uh, there were one or two different uh, or exceptions or changes to the, to the, uh, to the uh, process, 
But in, that, in essence, what it does is really a couple key things. It says, first, any regulation in the pipeline that is being worked on by the agencies, slow down until the new people come in and take a look at it. And that includes things that were at the Federal Register but haven't been published yet. The second thing it said is for those regulations that have been published but are not yet effective, take a look at those. And where it's appropriate, and you can go through a number of processes that, he, that is described, where appropriate, extend those deadlines and do it through a notice and comment process, and take a look at those. With the rule, with the Emanuel, and actually I should say that also OMB Director Peter Orzag did a follow-up to it, which was extremely helpful yesterday. Uh, yesterday? Yeah. Yesterday? Yes. Yesterday. Actually came out Sunday night. Today. Okay. Sunday uh, night. Came, mean, came out Tuesday. recently. <laughs> um, and what uh, Mr. Orzag, Director Orzag, did was clarify uh, the Rahm Emanuel memo to help the agencies better understand what they can and cannot do. What that process does not address are two things that I think we all are concerned about. One is there are agency actions that aren't precisely, <coughs> quote, regulations. Um, and these are things like, an example that I was brought to my attention was a protective action guide re recently taken. One example was on January 15th, the EPA put out one dealing with radiation exposure and actually had it at a level that was higher than what EPA deemed was safe. That wasn't, quote, a regulation. And so the question is, are agencies supposed to review those kinds of things? So we will have to get some clarity on these kinds of quasi-regulatory actions that agencies are taking. The second is, many of the rules that I mentioned in the horrible listing at the beginning were rules that were published and are already effective when President Obama took office. And we have to wait to see how the Obama administration and how Congress will begin to address those rules. And for those of us in the public interest, that's bread and butter for us. Ultimately, to address those midnight regulations, Congress, the Obama administration, and the courts are all likely to play some role. And we will have to go rule by rule to address those kinds of options before us. So I'll stop there. Sally, uh, this is your um, second transition, um, the first being um, the, the Clinton one. And I, I was wondering how uh, this transition uh, compares, compares to that one um, in, in going through these uh, outgoing actions of the previous administration. Well, in the first, I was not part of the coming in. I was part of the going out. <laughs> and in the second, uh, we're welcoming the Obama administration. So I have a slightly different perspective. The former, which is the midnight regs of the Clinton administration, I would like to say a few words because midnight regs have gotten a bad name. Um, if the substance is bad, and the recent substance is very bad. Gary has used his uh, normal understatement <laughs> to describe uh, the uh, uh, nastiness of some of these things. Uh, that's separate from the question of why does it happen? Why do we have midnight regs? And I would like to at least put a little bit of context in that from my experience in the Clinton administration. Um, part of what happens is human nature. 
people do not act until they have a deadline. Remember your term papers and when you started writing them. This happens with agencies as well. And often, high priority items just sit and sit and sit until it is clear they cannot sit any longer and then they start moving. We were also plagued, and I'm saying we here, this is the Clinton administration, um, with a uh, very hostile Republican Congress who put rider after rider after rider. I mean, one of the reasons the ergonomics rule came out so late is that for several years there was a no funds appropriated herein can be used to develop a regulation on repetitive stress injury, which means nothing could be done. And it, it, in the presence of that kind of slowdown, uh, work was not able to be taken in a timely basis. Congress has other ways of disturbing, distracting, disrupting the agency process, whether it be hearings. I think there was one week in the last month where I testified three times in one day before three different committees on three different subjects. But they can really, uh, that sucks up your time. It truly does. Um, there are uh, all sorts of other ways uh, from sending questions that need to be answered uh, by the people who would otherwise be working on the rules. These things happen all the time. And so uh, a lot of times the work doesn't get done. And in the Clinton administration, we weren't sure who won the election uh, for well after November. It was not until mid-December that a decision was rendered on that particular question. And so we were not exactly sure whether we would be um, uh, facing a, 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 a different kind of administration, um, which is one explanation for the lack of notices um, in the Clinton administration. Having said that, this time I'm on the other side and was working since uh, early <laughs> August on the um, transition um, to pick up the pieces or what do they say, clean up uh, some of the matters that were handled during the Bush administration. And there are uh, certain things that I can talk about, um, so bear with me on this one. but. Uh, the first and most important was that we already knew about the Bolton memo, which is the memo that said if an agency is going to do something, do it early and often rather than uh, last minute. That was what Gary was talking about, putting um, uh, using daylight savings time on steroids. The Bolton memo said get it in fast. And that was done so that the normal 60-day effective date would finish by January 20th. You have no idea how many rules became effective on January 19th and January 20th. Um, even we were surprised. The, the second aspect was they defined significant. You were talking about significant regulations. Significant regulations are either economically significant, $100 million or more on an, on an annual basis and all sorts of other things, uh, or have a material effect on the budget or present a novel issue. And we had considered anything that was reviewed by OIRA at OMB, anything that had significant, I hate to use that word, effect on the public as significant, in which case it could not take effect for 60 days. The Bush administration decided in its ultimate wisdom that it would limit that provision to those that were economically significant. So, so many of the ones that Gary was talking about which are very offensive, 
those regulations were deemed to be not significant and therefore able to take effect either immediately or on 30 days, but not wait the full 60 days. And for that reason, as Gary said, many of the Bush regs are in effect now, um, or at least as of January 20th, which makes it much more difficult to deal with. The third piece is that we were aware of the fact that while both Reagan and um, Bush had, had ordered their agencies to suspend the effective date of all regulations that had been published in the Federal Register but had not yet taken effect, the case law was not rock solid. Among other things, for example, the um, no one had challenged this in the courts, in, in part because by the time it was going to be resolved, probably the issue would be moot. The question is, do you want to take a more conservative approach or a more aggressive approach? And when Gary mentioned that the suspension of the effective date or the extension of an effective date on regs that had been published but were not yet effective, that is a consider. Consider, and we asked the agencies to do it because of the importance of the agencies, um, the primacy of the agencies, which was a theme during the Clinton years and hopefully will be a theme during the Obama years as well. It should be the agency's decision, and it should be based on a number of criteria, which essentially in the Peter Orzag memo say, is this legally valid? Now remember that the President of the United States has an obligation written in the Constitution to faithfully execute the law, faithfully carry out the law. If, therefore, there is something as to which there is significant serious, real question about the legality, then the agencies should not move forward with that because that would be a violation of the constitutional obligation of the president. Therefore, in the Peter Orzag memo, it says, consider, and it lists um, eight conditions, whether the rulemaking process was procedurally adequate. If it wasn't, then it's not valid. If it's not valid, it shouldn't be pursued. And you can go through the other criteria which are uh, in the document, mm -hmm. but they're all designed to have a real substantive basis on a case-by-case -case basis, not a blanket suspension of the effective date, but a reasoned, thoughtful basis based in law. And as Gary mentioned, the idea was to have a notice and comment period, presumably the original record contains information both pro and con. <coughs> Presumably, that record is relatively recent and therefore valid. Presumably, the information which the Bush administration might have overlooked or not given a great deal of weight to could now be reinvigorated. And in the supplemental notice that he was speaking about, there might be even more information mm -hmm that would be reflecting the current draft. So that leads to a uh, robust interpretation of 553 for those of you, like Jeff Lovers, who are passionate about the APA. But this is a notice and comment, because this should be accountable. It should not be by fiat. And that's one of the things that was done. Now, Gary mentioned <coughs> um, that 
there are various ways of dealing with these regulations, and some of these are discussed in here. Um, it is amazing how many different vehicles exist. Uh, and for those who are offended by some of the Bush regs, we encourage you, I encourage you personally, I'm speaking only for myself, not for the transition in any way, shape, or form. Did I say that at the outset? If not, I will say it now. I'm speaking only personally. There are things that are, are worth considering. For example, if a rule has not yet taken effect, whether or not the date of effectiveness has been suspended, and a suit is brought, then under Section 705 of the APA, the agency could decide to suspend the date pending judicial review. I'll just pause there so that this <laughs> sinks in. If, on the other hand, it has taken effect, the agency can go to the judge and say, uh, a suit has been brought. Um, rather than keep this thing in effect while we look at it, you should suspend it. I'll let that sink in for a second. That's the litigation. There's a congressional piece of this. There's the CRA, Congressional Review Act. There's appropriations riders. The issue there to be sensitive to is that if you knock out a less than desirably protective regulation, what do you have left? In other words, if you want a, a certain level of protection and you got much less than you wanted, but you take that out, then there might be nothing in some areas. And you're better off with half a glass than nothing at all. So each one of the CRA candidates has to be carefully, very carefully considered. And what is the consequence, apart from 801b2, which is the substantially similar reg, which um, is, is a technicality we can get into later if you really want to, but nobody does, uh, I hope. Um, aside from that, you really have to think about these. Same with appropriations rider. If you say you're not going to enforce, if, you, if Congress tells an agency not to enforce a particular reg, then what's in its place? And would you rather have something which is less protective than not protective at all? And then there's a whole host of administrative law things that the agencies can do, administrative things that the agencies can do. And one of the things that we were trying to do was, uh, on the one hand, identify problematic situations, and two, identify uh, good fixes or recommended fixes. And I think I'll stop there. Mm -hmm. okay. um, I'd uh, like to go back to the Emanuel memo. Um, uh, both Gary and Sally have, have talked about it. Um, I'd like to ask Anne, um, how common it, is it for a new administration to, to issue a memo like this, and, and what are some of the, the differences and similarities um, between this memo and, and other memos that have been issued? Uh, so I think if you look back on recent transitions, you've always seen memos, executive orders, directives related uh, uh, to the regulatory process. I think what's interesting with this transition uh, is staking out a middle ground uh, on the issue of the suspension of effective dates of regulations that have not taken effect. So when President Clinton took office in 1993, 
Um, unlike President Reagan before him and unlike President George W. Bush after him, uh, he did not suspend the effective dates of regulations that had not taken effect from, uh, from uh, uh, Bush 41. Um, so uh, there's sort of a middle ground approach because unlike the Bush 43, the card memo, which was a very broad suspension, uh, the Rahm Emanuel memo seems more attuned to some of the legal complexities and legal requirements about suspending the effective dates because there were court cases after the 2001 suspension and there are several court cases where these suspensions were struck down, some on grounds that the suspension was indefinite uh, some on the grounds that no justification was provided. So a, as uh, Sally mentioned, a procedural defect wasn't identified, a substantive problem wasn't identified. Um, so I see that as a difference in this memo. But it also is very common with previous administrations in terms of making sure that no new regulations get out uh, that, uh, uh, that were in the pipeline until this new administration signs off. That's very typical. And I'm sure you'll see like all the past administration's withdrawals of uncompleted regulatory processes. Reese, can I, can I just yeah, add, add to that? I, I, I do think that the Obama memo is very similar to the Bush memo, except it follows the law. That's the one big difference. <laughs> I think uh, looking back on it, we all saw a precursor of how the Bush administration would enter into this. And I think Sally did a very good job of trying to summarize how this memo, this time around, tries to adhere to law. The question that I think we should be asking isn't about the memo at this point, Reese. I think it's really about how do we take it another step? That is, how do we, every administration comes in with limited political capital. And an administration has to make the decision about moving forward with its agenda or looking back and fixing things. That's a, tough, that's a tough decision to make. In this case, I think we have raised enough really troublesome leftover regulations from the Bush administration that the Obama administration has to look backwards now. The question is how much and in what ways. Sally started to articulate different strategies that could be employed, and every one of them cost in various ways for Congress, for the administration. Those are tough decisions and those are the kinds of discussions we, we really need to be having. That's from my point of view. Can I add to that, if I may? Um, Gary is absolutely correct. It is a very difficult question whether to look back or to look forward. I think President Obama finds himself in a particularly difficult place because not only has the Bush administration produced a number of uh, quite um, problematic regulations, but the status of the workforce and the morale of the workforce has in many regulatory agencies been devastated. So as he speaks, as Gary speaks about the difficulty of beginning your own um, uh, pursuit of your own agenda and looking forward. And Anna had spoken about the fact that, well, new presidents, it takes them a while to get their staff in and get people confirmed. Look at the civil service. Look at the turnover that we have seen in the workforce. There are some agencies which you could only characterize as 
devastated. Where senior rule writers, where senior analysts, where scientists, economists, people who have spent their life in public service gave up or were pushed out. So you've got a big job, Mr. President, and do you have the ability to do it? Now, Dor, while he was a candidate, President, uh, President Obama called for making government cool again and attracting really good people from his lips to God's ears. I mean, this is what we need to have done. And people who care about the country have got to come now to the task because the agencies cannot do either the look back or the look forward in their present state and with the depleted resources that they have. Bureaucrat bashing is the favorite all-time Washington spectator sport. It is so wrong-headed. Uh, on this point, um, Anne has actually done a, another report for us um, called uh, Let's Get It Started on the uh, Political Appointment uh, Process. Um, and you can also find that on our website. Um, and uh, I think this issue is, is particularly important for um, addressing midnight regulation and also launching um, forward with the Obama administration's own agenda. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, the importance of, of getting your appointees in place and how uh, the administration might do that. Um, sure. I should highlight, Sally was also mentioning a sort of separate category of sort of non-political appointments. We have 300,000 plus, I don't even know what the number is, on change.gov who apparently have applied for political uh, jobs within uh, this new administration. But there are also a number of jobs that are not political jobs that are the civil service jobs uh, that need uh, people in, and uh, people uh, need to be uh, in those jobs. My report just focuses on the political slot, so we hear a lot about cabinet nominations, top agency appointments, a lot of media chatter. President Obama was so quick to name uh, all these new appointees. And if you look back uh, at Office of Personnel Management data going back to Carter, there's actually um, real lags that occur lower down. So yes, you get your cabinet in, but when do you get all 15 assistant secretaries in a department in? When do you get in a lot of these other political appointees? And it takes a lot of time, months. Uh, you can look at the report for, for various figures. But this links to the regulatory process because the extent of looking back and looking forward, you also need political leadership uh, to help with that, to give guidance to the civil service uh, and to move on. It, it, it's also wonderful to, to build off of that, even though it may not deal directly with midnight regulation, but deal with the regulatory process. Another wonderful thing that President Obama has just done was the lobbying and ethics uh, order that came out, because one of the things many of us complained about was in the Bush administration, you had foxes guarding the hen house. You had people coming from the industries that they were then coming in and regulating. The Obama order says very specifically to put an end to that. And I think that uh, it's, it's the right step, and he's taking each, each piece one at a time, and it addresses those, directly addresses and those appointments in a very constructive way, I think. I, I'd like to get into now um, the response that the Obama administration can take to, uh, to undoing some of these uh, midnight regulations, and then we can follow that with a, a discussion about launching into, uh, you know, a proactive agenda and kind of how, how they fit together. Um, we've talked already a little bit about this, 
Um, but um, Gary, I was I was wondering, you know, the the uh, the, the main uh, mechanism that agencies are likely to take to undo or revise is is the rulemaking process. But right. you know, the rulemaking process has has problems, um, and it takes a lot of time and energy and resources. I wonder if you could could uh, talk a little bit about the the rulemaking process. Well, it, it does take time. On the other hand, as I was mentioning, the Bush administration did some regulations in two and a half months on their way out, so you can get it done quickly. Um, I think there are three kinds of areas that you can address the midnight regulations. One is through congressional action, the other is litigation, and the third is administration actions. And there is going to be no one-size-fits-all for all of this. Um, on, the, uh, on the congressional side, Sally has already talked about something called the Congressional Review Act, which is a fast-track process, uh, non-amendable, non-filibusterable. Uh, we have people in this room who are experts on, on that subject. Um, uh, that's one approach. Um, there are other approaches. Sally alluded to the appropriations process of withholding funds. Another approach, Congress always has the authority to legislate either through the organic statutes or in freestanding uh, approach to simply say no to something and yes to something else. So Congress has a number of vehicles it could use if it chooses to go that path. The administration has a number of vehicles. Um, not only, Reese, is there the notion of doing a new rulemaking, but as Sally implied at one point, and, um, is the idea of uh, how litigation is going to be handled. If there is litigation already pending um, against a particular rule, and there are several that I've mentioned uh, already in which there is litigation, uh, how the Obama administration will handle that litigation is yet to be seen. Uh, there are strategies that could uh, move to settlement. There are strategies that um, might um, uh, drop uh, uh, the administration's actions. Uh, so there are things beyond just rulemaking that can help a, a rulemaking process. Um, so maybe I'll, I'll stop there and let um, Ann and Sally jump in, Reese, um, with other ideas. Can I mention? I'm sorry. Just very quickly, there's one other possibility that hasn't been mentioned yet is there's a category of rulemaking that can occur without prior notice and comment, really mm -hmm. two categories. Mm -hmm. but. Mm -hmm. um, so these are yep. direct final rules and interim final rules. So direct final mm -hmm. rules are supposed to be non-controversial regulatory actions uh, that can be put through without prior notice and comment and stay in effect unless, quote, adverse comments are received. So this is intended for non-controversial routine uh, type matters. But then interim final rules are rulemakings that can go through without prior notice and comment if good cause exists, whether for public health and safety, for national security, um, these type of rules can go through. Um, empirically, uh, uh, in 2001, 2002, this past administration used interim final rules for a range of actions where the sort of democratic notice and comment process did not occur. Uh, some, I would say, justified legally, uh, perhaps in uh, response to September 11th, for instance, and some much harder to justify legally. But that's a possibility uh, for this administration uh, to consider where it's legally warranted to be able to get some rulemakings in effect quite quickly without prior notice and comment. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> Let me start back on the Congress bit. Uh, Gary said correctly that Congress can always change the law. 
That is true, but it's a very heavy lift. <laughs> Remember that while the CRA is filibusterable proof, I thought that was a great word, <laughs> um, <clears throat> otherwise things can require, must require 60 votes in the Senate. Now the Senate is currently focused like a laser on confirmations. And to answer Anne's issues about how to get people in there, a lot of them have to be confirmed. And this takes up a lot of time and effort. Do you want them distracted with the substance? Maybe sometimes you do. There's an Economic uh, Recovery Act that is being prepared. We have a serious economic crisis. We've been talking here about health, safety, which are environment, which are very, very important. But there's another looming crisis uh, on, on the economy, and Congress's time is going to be spent on that. So how, uh, Gary talked about the tension of looking back or looking forward for the administration, how the Senate allocates its time. The House is very efficient, but the Senate is a deliberative body, and how it will allocate its time among these various things is, is um, difficult. I want to underscore the interim final rules, and this will bring me back to <coughs> Reese's questions about what about rulemaking, that interim final rules can be used where health, safety, the environment, or the economy uh, require immediate action where you issue a rule and then you take comments and you can adjust that rule to reflect the comments and then you go final. But that is a vehicle that's certainly within the law and uh, appropriate under the APA. I also want to repeat what I said earlier about conducting new notices. Uh, Reese said it takes a long time. Gary said they rushed it. Yes, yes. We did too. During the Clinton administration, the first bill that President Clinton signed was the Family and Medical Leave Act. We needed regulations, we needed implementing regulations, and we needed them fast, and they came out very quickly in a matter of months. Where there's a will and a capacity, there's a way, which is why I raised the capacity issue earlier. Um, in terms of some of the uh, undoing or changing the Bush regulations, as I mentioned before, they had an administrative record already compiled. If those who opposed the rule did their jobs and put in that record, all sorts of information that would support a stricter standard or a more sensible approach, that material is there and can be drawn upon by the agency with simply a supplemental notice that incorporates the past docket. And then you've got a lot of the work that has been done. You can have a shorter comment period. You could have a more expedited writing of the rule period. And while it takes time, it is important because we're saying up here what they did was wrong. Many of you in the audience may agree what they did was wrong. But what has to happen, even if we get it right, is that we do it right. And too many shortcuts will leave us vulnerable. And as the President said in his inauguration, we have certain values and so we're going to stick to them. And one of them is accountability, and the rulemaking process was designed to provide that kind of accountability for an inherently non-democratic type process. So you don't want to short-circuit them too much, but boy, there are ways of accelerating them, I promise you. Can I, Reese, can I also do a little show and tell from your paper? Sure. 
The, the paper that Reese mentioned that was by the Center for American Progress on OMB Watch and after midnight, there is an appendix that lists the kinds of regulations that we're talking about that have mostly, not all, I think there are three that haven't, but mostly become effective already. And I think if you look at that list, you will concur that no one solution of what we've all been talking about will satisfy all of these. Yeah. There is going to have to be a much more careful, much more thoughtful approach to each particular rule that the Bush administration did, determine whether it's warranted to be undone, and then what strategy is the appropriate way to make that happen. It will be a difficult process. I'd like to ask uh, specifically about the Congressional Review Act, which has been raised here. Um, rules completed after May 15th um, can be voted down by the new uh, Congress and signed by President Obama. Um, my question is, how likely is it that any rule um, will, will actually be voted down? Um, in the, in the, at the beginning of the Bush administration, um, they voted, uh, Congress voted down um, the ergonomics standard President Bush signed. Um, that, was, that, that was the only rule that's ever been voted down. Um, you know, can we expect that to, to happen um, this time at all? Well, you have the stars aligned. I mean, the House has a Democratic majority. The Senate has a Democratic majority, and the White House has a Democratic president. So you would not have uh, the institutional impediments that prevailed during periods of divided government. Um, in terms of efficiency, the CRA uh, limits to 10 hours of debate on both each side um, within the Senate. That's 20 hours of debate. Now, if you had 50 rules that you wanted to vote down, <laughs> You get those guys staying there all hours of the day and night and um, uh, sleeping on cots. It, that wouldn't work. But can they do a few uh, while they're doing their confirmations, while they're looking at the uh, Economic Recovery Act? They should be able to do that. What kinds of rules would they be appropriate for? the CRA. As I said before, you, you want to make sure that you're knock, knocking out something and then leaving yourself without any protections or any standards. Um, and what, what there has been um, in the press uh, has been many, too many nominations for CRA. Uh, I would think that a couple of them probably warrant CRA action and that the Congress probably will be willing to do a few, not a lot, but a few. For some, it will be retaliation for ergo. For some, it will be uh, fear that, oh my gosh, at some point the Democrats are going to leave the White House and we don't want to leave ourselves in that situation. Uh, and uh, for some, these are very controversial rules. Some of the candidates that I've seen for CRA, I'm thinking to myself, you know, I don't, you really, do you really, do you really, really, really want the Congress to address that issue? Um, so you have to have your head about you. And as Gary says, no one size fits all, but I think they can do it. Um, I'd like to now turn the discussion to um, launching an affirmative agenda um, from the Obama administration. Um, and, and you point out in your paper that administrations um, typically initiate uh, fewer regulatory actions in their, in their first year. Um, 
can you uh, say a little bit more about um, why that might be? I think it's partially what we've discussed before with regard uh, to getting appointments in place. But I think there's a range of steps uh, that could be taken to launch that affirmative agenda more quickly. I mean, the first, obviously, is appointments. Uh, the second is making sure the administration is clear uh, on its regulatory in terms of uh, this administration, but any administration that came in, perhaps deregulatory uh, priorities, and then communicating those priorities uh, and with discussions uh, with agencies. Third, obviously, the role of OMB and the office that Sally used to head within the Clinton administration, the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, uh, to which uh, Cass Sunstein, a law professor, has been nominated. Uh, that office has to sign off uh, on notices of proposed rulemaking before they're published in the Federal Register and also to sign off on the final rules uh, before they're enacted uh, for cabinet departments and executive agencies. So obviously, um, OMB and their regulatory review process uh, is an important part of, about getting these new regulatory processes started, um, and there are others. But there are sort of several steps, sort of a, a conf um, many factors have to come together from the personnel, both appointees and civil service, in terms of the actual priorities, in terms of the OMB process, and then also the, the details of actually getting uh, a good notice of proposed rulemaking uh, together. And Sally, um, what can you say about um, what the Obama administration is, is now doing to develop its regulatory priorities and, and how far along are things at this point? Nothing. <laughs> I can't speak to that. Okay. Sorry. Ma Reese, maybe, maybe I could also <laughs> chime in on some of Ann's suggestions uh, um, of things that we would want. Uh, okay, sure. Go ahead. Um, I was privileged to be part of a process that involved um, a set of regulatory experts from different points of view uh, mm -hmm. that worked for about a year and a half, almost, almost two years, to see whether we could come to agreement. I think we all recognize the current regulatory process is dysfunctional. It needs fundamental change. We started at that point and then worked forward to identifying if we were to redo it, what would we do? And I, among the things, it's a long report, lots of recommendations, but four that I would want to mention. Um, one is there was a decided agreement among all of us that there needed to be more delegation to the agencies. Um, that decision making should really reside at the agency level, should not be at the, at the White House or the OMB or the Office of Information Regulatory Affairs. That's without regard to the many abuses that we could cite, that I would cite, that the Bush administration did, um, where they ran roughshod over science from the agencies. But the first foremost is delegation to the agencies. The, the second is that the relationship between OMB and the agencies needs to change. Uh, OIRA, the Office of Information Regulatory Affairs, does play an important role in uh, providing coordination uh, among the rulemaking agencies. Um, our, our view was that that relationship needs to be less a yes-no role and more the facilitator and coordinator. That changes the dynamics enormously. The third is agencies need resources not just to write the rules but to enforce rules that are on the books. And we need to have a comprehensive look at the ability of the agencies to do that. And the final point I would make is there are a host, just a 
host of analytical and procedural hurdles to getting rules done. Many of those are contributing to unnecessary delay. And what we should do is take a look at those, whether they're congressionally mandated or whether they're done through executive power. We should reassess those, get rid of those things that are unnecessary, streamline the process so it's much more acceptable and, and gets the real work done. We've got to talk about getting results. So those are four things I would add, Reese. Uh, any response to uh, Gary's uh, four recommendations? I have testified before, and not in the capacity of the administration or even of the transition, that I thought that the layering and layering and layering of analysis had gotten kind of out of control and should be reviewed. Uh, I, so I would support his fourth big time. I mentioned that the one way in which the Rahm Emanuel memo differs from the card memo from Bush was that the White House there said, extend the effective dates. What Rahm Emanuel has said is, consider extending the effective dates. And the Peter Orzag memo talks about what the agency head should be thinking about. So I have no problem with primacy uh, of the agencies. I would also note that as a candidate, Barack Obama spent a lot of time talking about restoring the integrity of science. I don't think you'll see it trammeled uh, in this administration, but that's just sort of an educated guess. Um, in terms of the resources for the agencies, you betcha. I mean, they don't have them. I talked earlier about people. They don't have funds. Uh, something has to be done, and I would support strongly, personally, support uh, what could be done on that. In terms of the role of OIRA, you might not be surprised that I see it a little differently. Um, my institutional bias is showing. Uh, I think OIRA is a neutral process. And Elena Kagan's very good article in the Harvard Law Review, which talks about presidential administration, shows that it can be used to promote regulation and to do good things. What the Bush administration did was use OIRA to destroy sensible uh, regulations and to suppress uh, uh, smart things that were happening, uh, that could have been happening. But I don't think that just because it has been used in an abusive way means that you should uh, get rid of it. And uh, Gary said, well, keep the coordinating, keep the facilitator approach, and I would keep the emphasis on that syllable. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'd uh, now like to open it up for questions uh, from the audience. Um, and first, um, if there are any uh, reporters um, that have questions, um, we'll take those questions first. Uh, please raise your hand. Um, okay, right here in the front. And uh, please introduce yourself. Sure. Joaquin Sapien with ProPublica. Um, I wanted to ask uh, to what extent uh, you all expect the Obama administration to use cost-benefit analysis in its review of these midnight regulations, and also whether uh, we can expect an expansion in the role of OIRA in, in reviewing these, and, and also for in promulgating future regulations. I can perhaps take a stab since I have no constraints on, on what I can say. Um, I think the nomination of Cass Sunstein to head OIRA uh, strongly suggests that cost-benefit analysis is not going anywhere. Um, I think the Sunstein nomination uh, was received uh, 
by d different groups uh, in different ways. So I think the academics, myself included, uh, were cheering, right, to, to see this uh, legal great uh, um, in administrative law to be named uh, as head of OIRA. On the other hand, there were some in the public interest community, uh, people who were concerned about environmental policy, worker health and safety, uh, who were very concerned. I mean, after all, Mr. Sunstein just published an article uh, entitled, Is OSHA Constitutional? In which he um, concludes it is. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but even raising uh, the question about the sort of scope of authority delegated to OSHA uh, and whether that complies with the non-delegation doctrine uh, raised some hackles. So I, I think you're going to see, you're not going to see cost-benefit analysis going anywhere as to the particular question as to whether it will be expanded or not. Uh, that I can't say, right? You, you have Cass Sunstein, a man of many ideas, very devoted to cost-benefit analysis coming from the ivory tower into the political world of Washington, D.C. So how that will work out, I'm not so sure. In my personal capacity and as an ex-administrator of OIRA, I would say that cost-benefit analysis is very useful. It's a very Im important input. It should not be dispositive. But if you're making a decision, every single one of us every single day considers the costs and the benefits of taking a cab versus walking or uh, leaving the lights on or turning them off, etc. And you don't think about it that way, but you are trying to assess the costs and assess the benefits. And to inform decision making, it's invaluable. Because I would ask the rest of you who, who don't like it very much, what then would you think about? Is it just your gut check? This looks good? This feels good? And so I believe it is very helpful as input. It is not, it cannot be, it should not be, but I cannot speak for Cass Sunstein. I don't think he thinks it should be dispositive. And that's because there are lots of things that are difficult to quantify and monetize. It is because there are enormous values at stake. Uh, maybe, maybe I can take a <laughs> shot at it too. <laughs> Cost-benefit analysis is a thorny subject. Um, there are many of us in the public interest community that see it as a tool that has potential for enormous misuse. Um, at the core of it, you know, how do you value a human life? How do you value things that are difficult to put a dollar on? And it is a tool that economists have brought to the social regulatory field and it has advanced significantly over the years. It has gotten to be a more and better and more precise tool. At the same time, it is often very difficult, as they say, to apply. It also raises questions about the statutory uh, language that agencies are delegated uh, to take on. Many of the statutes specifically talk about standards that are not cost-benefit, that um, have other criteria. The question is, will the Obama administration overlay cost-benefit on top of those other criteria? That's a question that has to be decided. In my mind, a solution to this problem is if, in fact, we do believe in the delegation back to the agencies, then the right solution should be to let the agencies determine when and if they should use cost-benefit as a tool instead of mandating that from the White House. To the extent that OMB does think that the agencies will employ this tool, they should provide general guidance to the agencies to assist the agencies in doing this. 
providing, again, the flexibility for the agencies to, to do this. So I, I don't think, even though there is within my own community a very determined view that cost-benefit is not a good tool, I think there are ways to get around this issue by, again, relying on the delegation to the agencies. Any other reporters with questions right here? Chao-Chen, freelance correspondent. Uh, since the solid, you are in the transition team. Uh, my question is this. Uh, to suspend the effect date of the regulation already done, next uh, time, next thing is how to deal with them. And you already uh, say several methods. Do you say which method going to apply to what regulation? And the monitor have mentioned about this uh, uh, affirmative regulatory agenda and the priority of regular agenda. I was surprised to hear that nothing had been done on this uh, uh, issue. I would suggest uh, that uh, Central American Progress and uh, OMB Watch uh, get another report on this thing. And uh, my observation is this, uh, the major activity will be uh, in EPA and SEC. I would like to know what happened to the uh, leadership and the manpower. Are those uh, uh, nominee for the two uh, agencies are able to deal with, with those? And also, uh, have you uh, tried to uh, get the budget for these two agencies so to have a, a personnel and other things to deal with? Thank you. Well, there are a lot of questions <laughs> in your question. Um, as to the various approaches, uh, I subscribe to the view expressed by my colleague Gary, not one size fits all, not one approach is better than the others. Each one, which is why I said at the outset, each, um, each time we found a problematic reg, we looked to see what was the best kind of fix, and sometimes there was a fallback fix that was recommended, but they differ for each of the regulations. In terms of the uh, nominations, uh, the, the uh, Obama uh, administration has, I think, identified people who are smart, capable, leaders, managers, and uh, I am uh, confident that when they are uh, confirmed and take uh, their places at the agencies, will be able to work to fulfill his agenda. And I think beyond that, I can't say anything else. Um, oh, in the back there, um, right you, yeah, uh, right here, Christine. <laughs> Peggy Simpson, uh, Women's Media Center. Could you uh, massage the uh, HHS reg on uh, reproductive health, reproductive whatever? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, what kind of, where does it fall in the scheme of the things you're talking about? Objectionable. Yeah. <laughs> I, I actually, I think that's an example of an action where if you think about uh, rescinding or any of these various strategies where the default uh, is likely preferred by the Obama administration, right? So if you settle a lawsuit with regard uh, to the HHS regulation, the default is that health care providers don't have to certify 
that they provide a room for people not to provide medical services on the basis of religious or moral grounds. So the default without it would be preferable to this administration. So that's actually an example where some of these techniques in, per in particular could be used to achieve the policy objectives of this administration. In addition, I think that particular rule is somewhat broader than just a woman's issue because while it might have been promulgated to um, reduce the incidence of abortions, it affects AIDS, it affects a, a variety of uh, different uh, diseases uh, and and uh, things uh, where the care provider should be providing care. And so I, I think that this is one that is much broader in scope and therefore all the more compelling, which is why I leaped in to say it's objectionable. I don't like it. Uh, right, right here in the front. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Kennigsberg, and I'm with Congress now. Gary, you mentioned how the Obama administration is going to either have to look forward or look back on overturning past mistakes. And Sally, you said Congress will have the opportunity to look at a few um, types of policies because they're obviously overwhelmed with stimulus packages and nominations. So what types of things should we look for in the immediate future with policy? And are we overriding, or are we putting new agenda? I would not be so presumptuous as to suggest any path for Congress. They have to determine their own fate um, and their own priorities. And with respect to the Obama administration, as he said in his inaugural, people think we can't do a whole lot. Watch. I, I would just add, I, I hope you didn't take my comment to say um, either look forward or look back. I think there's a somewhere in between, which is doing a little of both and a whole heck of a lot of looking forward. But you've got to stop, look back, fix those incredibly troublesome rules, and then move on forward. And in fact, there may be some ways of looking forward that also fix some of the bad things that are happening in the, in the past. I don't need to exclude those. Uh, Bill Combs. Bill Combs with 21st Century Democrats. Looking for quantification. Is, can you, uh, those that have uh, already been published, that. The, the, the most objectionable, the most abusive? Are we looking at tens, twenties, hundreds of regulations that, that we ought to be putting on the list to work on? Or have you got any kind of way to quantify what we ought to be doing? And is anybody putting together that list so that we kind of know? Um, I, I think at the end of this report, um, check me if I'm wrong, Reese, but there's at least about 50. Is that right in this? Uh, it's close. It gets up there, yeah. It's a, I think it's in the 40s. These are just of rules that people have identified that, except for three of them, are already effective. There are literally at any given time well over 100, maybe a couple hundred rules always in the pipeline. Of those, we've begun to look at what are objectionable. We, we probably, when you combine this list with other lists, we're talking numbers exceeding well over 100 rules that, are, that we're, we're very concerned about. And I think that the Emanuel memo uh, helps to address a, a significant portion of those because they were not yet effective rules. I think well over 100 is, is a pretty good take at it. And people are always making lists. Yeah, I'm right list back of here. lists. <laughs> Uh, 
Hi, I'm Josh Futterman. I'm one of those people that Sally talked about earlier, uh, having to come to Washington to make a difference. And uh, my question for you is, we've talked a lot about numbers, we've talked a lot about problems in the rulemaking process, but one of the things that we haven't talked about today is how to rebuild inspiration and morale in the various departments. And I was wondering if you could touch on how the administration, how we might be able to do some things very quickly that aren't going to require us to spend a lot of time with Congress, that aren't going to require us to come up with money, that will make a difference right away. Well, again, relying on statements that I made outside of the transition and speaking only in my own personal behalf, one is embrace the civil service. A political appointees are not smarter than the average civil servant, and they're not more experienced than the average civil servant. And they should not be looking down on or holding at arm's length. They should embrace the civil servants who have the experience and the knowledge and the commitment that can be turned to advantage. Um, meeting with them, bringing them into discussions, listening. You don't have to follow their advice, but you need to hear what it is and make your own judgment. I think that's one of the most important things. Another is uh, to try to do your bit in this town and around the country in restoring faith in our government generally, the trust in our government. We saw it in fits and starts after the Murrah building when people realized, hmm, maybe bureaucrat bashing has gone a bit far. It's now turned into bombing, for God's sake. Uh, we saw it after 9-11 with the work of the firemen and the police officers who rushed in. We ought to be focusing on what the people in this town day after day after day do. And forgive me, the government is not part of the problem. It is part of the solution. And that word has to be spread far and wide and with conviction. I, I'll stop there. And Josh, I would just also say we've already seen in the last few days a remarkable, remarkable change. The President has talked about at least three things that give me great energy to think about our government. Once again, coming to the aid of the people. One is he talked about it isn't about a big or a small government, it's about a government working. He's talked about the respect for science, and he's talked about now openness, and he's talked about participatory government. Those are the kinds of things that make the public excited. Those are the kinds of things that send chills down many people's back. That's why we had 1.8 million people come here over the last few days. This is an exciting time to reinvigorate what we all believe in, which is a government that responds to the public. It's exciting. Uh, yes, uh, good afternoon. Uh, my name is William Stokes. Uh, the, the thing that comes to my mind when I listen to this discussion is sabotage. And what I mean by that is there seems to be a, a talks uh, to focus on how to ensure that government, pres say presidents, at a certain point can't do anything else after, before they go out of office. Because, I mean, the time that Obama's gonna have to deal with just dealing with, I mean, his people have to deal with some of these regulations, and some of these sound like they might be very um, uh, stinky, so to speak. I think I would say, William, I, I agree. I would just add that it isn't just the midnight regulations that Bush left us with. We put out a report on the table, and it's on the OMB Watch website, called the, the Bush Legacy 
an assault on public protections, and it's written more from storytelling of what happened over the last eight years. You know, and it isn't just sabotage. I'd say it's sophisticated sabotage. Yeah. Uh, Jordan Bear of House Education and Labor Committee. Um, the Congressional Review Act, um, when it was used against ergonomics, it was unquestionably a, a tool of evil. And now it's kind of a, an instrument for truth and justice. Um, but my, I guess my question is, is it really good policy? I mean, is it good policy for agencies, for Congress to be able to essentially rescind a, uh, a regulation, especially like ergonomics that had been worked on for 10 years? Um, does it make for better rulemaking? Or does it mean the agencies are just looking over their shoulders? Um. I can tell you that when it was first proposed in the contract for America, I shuddered. And then I, I uh, was surprised to find that President Clinton said, this is good government. It is, after all, the Congress that is the repository of the legislative power. It is Congress that delegates to the agencies. And Congress should be accountable and be responsible, and therefore, I don't think that it's bad government to say, you delegated, here's the work product, can you live with it? Want to say something? No, I would just agree with that. I mean, originally, these agencies in getting out these regulations are relying, at least allegedly relying, on legal authority that was granted to them by Congress. So the fact that Congress has some ex post oversight mechanism seems desirable. It's also an, uh, an ex post mechanism that's more transparent than perhaps some of these information requests uh, and other devices uh, that have been used, uh, in particular uh, after the 94 elections. That's a good point. Uh, Ian Milheiser with the National Senior Citizens Law Center. And I want to ask a quick question about regulatory preemption. So one issue that we've seen, and I see Sally uh, giving me the uh, palm face here, but um, one issue that we've seen the Bush administration take on with real aggression is not just creating a void in what the regulatory agency is doing, but actually stripping away states' abilities to enforce their own law. So you have drug companies being told that when they've committed torts that have been sanctionable since before the states were states, they now can't do anything, they now can't do anything at all about it. So I have a question in two parts. The first is, What's the Obama administration going to do about that? And then the second part is, of course, the Supreme Court has taken statutes which were never intended to preempt um, state law and has interpreted them to go far beyond what Congress is, has intended to do. How is the Obama administration going to be cognizant of that problem to make sure that benign regulations, which are not intended to create problems, don't start creating problems because Justice Scalia has a bone to pick? <laughs> I think it is fair to say, without giving away any state secrets, that the Obama administration is aware of the Wyeth case and the other um, uh, incidents of um, uh, preemption, not only of state positive law, but as you point out, of state tort law as well. Um, there have been a number of suggestions advanced uh, of how to deal with this on a global basis or on a um, case-by-case case basis. And I think that's all I can say, but they're very smart people. They get it. I, I think it's a nice parallel, though, also to Gary's four points about reforms of the rulemaking process. I mean, its first point is about delegating more authority to the agencies. I think 
right, you would also perhaps want to make the argument that you also want to perhaps have more delegation to the states uh, with regard to sort of uh, laboratories of democracy, both on the regulatory arena and then also in state tort law. Okay, we'll take two more questions. Um, right, right here. Thank you. Marty Birnbaum. Um, you've talked exclusively about the midnight rules and regs. What about the midnight hirees and the staffers who now are part of that civil service that we want to promote? Uh, there, there's been a lot written about burrowing in. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, questions being raised. Um, I'm not sure we have a good handle on the facts. Um, it does not, a civil servant doesn't have to give up his political beliefs to be a good civil servant. What a civil servant has to do is produce. And the test should be, do they do the work, not who they voted for? Because we tried to get away from that. And I don't think we should return to the patronage system. So the president is the leader. He will send out the signals. And if the uh, soldiers march behind, God bless them. If they uh, fall out or sabotage, uh, then they don't deserve to be there. One more question uh, back here. This is hard. <laughs> Hi, it's uh, Dean Scott. I'm with, <clears throat> with BNA here in town. I cover uh, climate change and regulatory policy. Uh, I guess my question is broad. I'm just wondering, Reese, if you could talk a little bit about uh, the back and forth that you're talking about today in terms of one administration comes in and has midnight regulations as, as it's departing. The next administration comes in, uh, takes a hard look at those regulations, decides what, what's politically palatable, and this goes on and on for the last several decades, certainly. But I'm wondering, you know, what, what gets lost in that, I guess, is what's the result of that? Is, you know, are workers uh, well protected by the system of flux? You know, is the environment protected? Or are we spending a lot of time sort of just going back and forth? Does anybody else want to respond to that? I think well, yes, you do. You definitely see the flux uh, in the report that I did. I mean, there's a certain irony in the card memorandum, the 2001, right? Because he's both a sort of midnight deregulator and a sort of crack of dawn responder because the Secretary of Transportation in the closing days of Bush 41 was trying to push stuff through. And then he comes in with Bush 43 and tries to stop uh, the outgoing. Now, the, the normative question, you know, is this a good thing or a bad thing for the environment? And the Constitution prescribes it in a sense of political transition. So um, on, on one hand, uh, there's sort of d democratic values, why we have these sort of political cycles, uh, as I term them, of rulemaking. Um, on the other hand, in terms of social welfare, sort of the best thing for the environment or the best thing for public safety may not be the best thing, but we live in, we're constrained by the political and constitutional realities in which we live. Dean, I'd like to take it maybe a slightly different angle. All of us in Washington are pretty, I don't know if the right word is jaded. Um, we're caught up in a lot of the legalese and the, the whole notion of inside the beltway talk. I think what we tend to forget are these regulations are about protecting the public. When, you know, we can't consider under an endangered species regulation 
the impact of global climate changes on habitat, that harms all of us. When you slice off a top of a mountain and the spoil goes into the riverbed, it ruins the environment for everyone in that surrounding area. And we need to think of these as about impact on people. Every one of the rules, the health care provider rule we talked about, family medical leave, this affects hundreds of thousands and millions of people across this country. That's what we have to keep in mind and why Ann and Sally have I, and I have been talking about how important this is. It's in that context that we care about this. And I think that's a good note to end this panel discussion. Uh, please join me in, in thanking our panelists for an excellent discussion.